This morning we are continuing to move forward with our series of studies on the life of Joseph as drawn from the Old Testament book of Genesis, specifically from chapters 37 to 50. In recent weeks we have seen the reunion of Joseph with his brothers after many years of hardship and separation. All of that culminated in a restoration that was a wonderful picture of forgiveness and reconciliation. And following the account of Joseph's reunion with his brothers, we then saw the reunion of Joseph with his father, Jacob, and the subsequent resettlement of God's people as they moved out of the land of Canaan, which was the land of promise, and into the land of Egypt. And this move, comprising some 70 persons, was the beginning of what would eventually become a ridiculously long period of their living and multiplying inside the incubator that Egypt turned out to be. Now, at first, their time in Egypt was actually a positive thing, and we saw that last week when they came in. They were honored guests and would remain so throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. But as the book of Exodus outlines, that did not last long, and they eventually became slaves and captives in Egypt, and this time of enslavement would continue for 400 years, right up to the point when God sent Moses to deliver them and to lead this nation that at that time then consisted of millions of people, and he was going to take them back toward the land of promise from which they'd originally come. Now, amazingly, this whole series of events, as we've seen before, was not a surprise but had actually been foretold by God himself to Abraham many years before Joseph and Jacob ever showed up on the scene. In the foreshadowing, the Lord very specifically told Abraham that his own descendants would indeed be enslaved for 400 years, but that afterwards they would come out with great possessions. And all of this, of course, was told to Abraham in the context of God's overarching covenant promises which both preceded the whole Egyptian period and then continued long afterwards and still continues, in fact, right up to our own day. Our study today will pick up where we left off, verse 13 of chapter 47, and we'll go all the way through to the end of chapter 48. I've divided this section into four parts, beginning with the account of Joseph's administration of things during the period of the famine, followed by uh, Jacob's burial instructions, after which we will look at Jacob's adoption of Joseph's sons and then finish with a look at Jacob's blessings upon Ephraim and Manasseh. That's where we're heading. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Father in heaven, please use this time to nurture and nourish your people, to reveal yourself to your people, to amaze your people with who you are and what you have done and what you have yet to do. Deepen our love for you through this time and equip us for greater usefulness for the service of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want us to think about 
is Joseph's administration of Egypt's affairs during this period of the famine which God had used him to predict, starting at verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we, with our land, will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. What we have here is, in essence, uh, a record of how the business transactions took place between Pharaoh and his people during the famine. And as you read this, you have to try and remove uh, the very modern concept of the welfare state from your thinking, because if you don't, you will likely not understand the attitude of either Pharaoh, who might come across as uncaring, or of the Egyptian people, who might come across as rather naive. At any rate, in keeping that in mind, what happens here has been summarized, I think, rather well by one writer who describes it like this. He says, The grain market in Egypt during the time of the famine followed the natural course of trade. Joseph had the corn, the people had money. But Joseph's corn outlasted the people's money. Then when money failed, Joseph took cattle. How long the money lasted is not said, but the cattle lasted as payment for about a year. The next year, probably the last or maybe the next to last of the famine, the people had nothing to give for corn but their lands and their persons. And so it was that eventually every bit of property, every single person in Egypt became the possession of Pharaoh. This, as Derek Kidner puts it, simply made actual what had already been true in theory. 
that is Pharaoh's sovereignty over Egypt. And for the people's part, they seem to have been nothing but grateful to Pharaoh in his dealing with them, which again, when seen through the eyes, uh, modern eyes and through the lens of modern assumptions about the welfare state, seems to make little sense. But we cannot force their ancient response through our modern filter. In the end, and even though the people had given everything to Pharaoh in order to spare their lives, really, for all practical purposes, he returned their lands back to them. He allowed them to live on it and prosper from it upon the not unreasonable condition that they give 20% of the profits to Pharaoh. And this, as you may recall, was simply an extension of what already took place during the years of the famine, And so now its institution really just kind of amounts to an income tax, which at that rate, 20%, would not be much different from what is found today in many modern countries, including our own. That, in a nutshell, is what happened during the famine. As for why this part of the Joseph story has been preserved for us, while a few commentators have ventured an answer to that question, it seems to me that at least one reason would be that it shows how it was that Pharaoh's power came to be more centralized and more absolute. And while this is not necessarily an important factor in the Genesis accounts, it does play a significant factor in the next book, Exodus, in which Pharaoh wields and displays a power that is not only amazing in its extent, but is equally amazing in terms of the willingness of his people to keep submitting to it, even against all sense and reason. And I think the historical roots for both sides of that equation are found here in this history. Let's uh, read a little further on. Thus Israel settled in the... uh, in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel, that is Jacob, bowed himself upon the head of his bed. There's a lot in those verses. Even in just the first two verses. I mean, think about this for a moment. Jacob, after arriving in Egypt, and after being reunited with his lost son Joseph, after all of that, he lived in the land for 17 years. Think about what those 17 years would have been like for Jacob. It was 17 years of living in the best land of Egypt, having plenty of food, Gaining possessions, as the passage says, having the best of what Egypt had to offer, we learned from the passage last week. 17 years of living with his sons and doing so finally in an atmosphere of peace and harmony with all of his sons, demonstrating a genuine love and affection for each other. 
In short, it was 17 very good years. And you see, that's just the thing. If you look back and start counting up all the years that were lost, all the time that Joseph was gone, all those years of mourning, Jacob just kind of slogging ahead, getting through the day, If you add all that up, it comes to more than 17 years. So in one sense, in a purely temporal sense, the years that were lost were more than those final years for Jacob. But if you think about what those lost years, uh, you know, what those lost years would have been like if Joseph had never been taken away. It's something to think about. What would have happened if Joseph had remained amongst his brothers that entire time? Most likely the disunity and the division and the dysfunctionality within their family would have just gone on and on, getting progressively worse. Most likely Benjamin would have been dragged further and further into it as well. In short, they would not have been good years. They would have been horrible years. And most likely that pattern would have continued all the way to the point of Jacob's death. So yes, from one perspective, God took away some years from Jacob, but the years he gave back and restored were more than what was lost. Not in length of time, but certainly in terms of quality and sweetness and peace and abundance. Makes me think of the passage in Joel. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. To borrow the language of Joel, for Jacob's sake, God restored the years that the locust had eaten. And how encouraging is that? This is our God. This is our God. The God who takes away, absolutely. But the God who can and he does restore what is lost and then some. I know it's easier to talk about that than it is to believe it. Sometimes, especially when you are slogging through those years in Canaan. Maybe that's where you feel like you are. But you need to know this is true. And it's one of those truths that you need to remember. And when you can't remember it, it's a truth that God may use your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you remember. The other thing I want you to see in this section are these burial instructions that Jacob gives to Joseph about which he feels so strongly that he gets him to make this really strange vow that to our modern sensibility seems entirely too familiar and earthy. 
But the thing to focus on is not the nature of the vow, but rather the sense of urgency that drives Jacob to demand it. After 17 years and sensing that this time of death is nearly on him, Jacob also referred to as Israel here. He takes this step to ensure that he's not buried in Egypt, but is instead buried with his fathers in the family plot, so to speak. And Jacob's instructions here should be seen for what they are, an expression of his great faith and his great confidence in God. They are Jacob's declaration that the promises of God do not stop with him, and they will not die with him in Egypt. They are Jacob's affirmation that the future of God's people is certain. So certain, in fact, that even though it is 400 years in the future, he wants to be buried in a place that is out in the middle of nowhere because he knows that the day is coming when that place will be surrounded by the people of God because God has fulfilled that promise. I used to think that people who planned their funerals years ahead of time were, uh, you know, years before they were, were any likelihood of dying. I just thought they were morbid people, people who had an unhealthy obsession with death. But the closer I get to my own death, the more I think I understand what many of them are doing and why, or at least I'm starting to. And I read a passage like this and I'm even more persuaded of the value and rightness of what these people are doing. Because for many of them, their hope and intention is, I believe, the same as that demonstrated by Jacob here. They want to make sure that their death and their burial are handled in a way that demonstrates their complete trust and confidence in the promises of God. They want their departure from this life to take place in a way that shows that they are looking forward to the future that God has for them and that he is yet to bring to fullness but most certainly will. Even further, they want to be buried in a way that not only shows their confidence in God's promises but in a way that also inspires hope and confidence and courage within their family and amongst their friends and especially to their children if they've been blessed with children. That may be the last and greatest lesson we teach our children. How to die looking forward to the Lord. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. 
when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Now, there's a number of things going on in this section we're not going to deal with. The one thing I want you to focus on here is the adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh. As a blessing and encouragement to Joseph, Jacob takes this step of making uh, his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, sorry, Joseph's sons, part of his own family. Verse 5, Jacob says, Your two sons are mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the reason he takes this step... It's because by doing so, he raises these two boys to the level of heirs. And this then puts them and their descendants in line to receive directly a portion of the promised land. And, that, and when that time eventually comes, it also puts them in line to receive part of Jacob's inheritance. And most importantly, puts one of them in line to receive the blessing that was typically given to the firstborn. Now, normally this firstborn blessing would have gone to Reuben, who was, in fact, the eldest of Jacob's sons, and he was the son of Leah. However, as 1 Chronicles 5.1 confirms many years later, Reuben forfeited his birthright because he had defiled his father's bed. And according to one commentator, this then meant that the birthright next fell to the firstborn, not of the servants' wives, but of the other free woman which was Rachel, whose eldest was Joseph. And if that's correct, then Jacob's intention here seems to be to bless Joseph by adopting and blessing his two sons. And Joseph seems to be only too happy for this arrangement to take place. He's sort of forfeiting his place for the sake of his sons. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said... Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he, shall, he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, 
by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, given to you rather, um, sorry, uh, but God will be with you, and I'll bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the land of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. After taking this step of formally adopting Ephraim and Manasseh, this final section deals in the main with the administration of Jacob's blessing upon them. At this point, Jacob is clearly not long for this world. His health and his life are rapidly fading, including his eyesight, such that initially he's not able to recognize Joseph's sons until they're brought near. And so they are, and after they're brought near, he takes them upon his knees he kisses and embraces them for a moment, but not for long. I mean, 147-year-old knees can only take so much. And so after having this brief moment with him, Joseph removes him, and then as an act of reverence and respect toward his dying father, he seems to have prostrated himself on the ground before him. And after this, Joseph gets up, brings his sons forward, presumably because he senses that the time has come for Jacob to give this blessing You may wonder what this blessing is all about. What is the significance of this blessing? And one writer by the name of Cole, I think, helpfully describes it this way. He said, with Jacob, as well as with his father Isaac before him, the blessing was something that was reserved for a special occasion. It was more than just a father's prayer for the well-being of his son. It was the actual imparting of well-being based on special divine prophetic insight about the spiritual future of that son. Once given, it was irrevocable. That's why, for example, Esau was so upset when Jacob deceived their father into giving him a blessing years before. So just as his father Isaac had done, so Jacob is now about to do, this is a very important moment, Joseph knows this, and he grabs his two sons, and he brings them forward. He, he, does, he places Manasseh over here on his left hand, because he's the oldest, and Ephraim is on his right. He's the younger of the two. And this will then put Manasseh within reach of Jacob's right hand, which was the one used to convey the blessing, the greater blessing of the firstborn. And Ephraim would be on his left, the recipient of a lesser but still significant blessing. And the reason Joseph did this was... Because typically that was how things went in those days. The oldest received a special blessing. As a result, he was only following custom and tradition at that point. However, as the boys are coming forward, uh, Israel does a strange thing. Jacob does a strange thing. He reaches out and he crosses his hands so that his right hand is not on Manasseh. It's on Ephraim. And his left hand is on Manasseh. And then Jacob launches into this blessing, directing it, as we've already seen, to Joseph, but it's really through Joseph to his sons. And as he launches into it, he starts out with this sort of invocation, in which he refers to God in three different ways. God of his father, Isaac, and his grandfather, Abraham. is the God who has shepherded him his whole life. And then along with these references, he refers to God as the angel who redeemed him from evil. And uh, if you look at places like Genesis 28, 13, or 31, 11 to 13, or 32, 24 to 30, you'll see several examples of how that happened. 
But anyway, he invokes God's name. He begins pronouncing this blessing upon the two boys, asking specifically that God might allow his name and that of his ancestors to be carried on through them, that they might grow into a mighty nation. And then, at this point, it seems that his blessing is interrupted by Joseph. He noticed that his father had crossed his hands and placed his right hand on Ephraim and not on Manasseh. And uh, his father had gone on probably before he had a chance to say anything. But it seems from what he said and did hear that all, he thought all of this was simply a mix-up on his father's part. He thought that perhaps his father had gotten confused. He was, he was dying. He's not seeing clearly, maybe not thinking clearly. Maybe his father thought that Manasseh was on Joseph's right side instead of his left, and so that's why he crossed his hands. And so with this in mind, Joseph tries to correct what he sees as his father's mistake by attempting to move Jacob's right hand from Ephraim to Manasseh, but Jacob will not have it. He quickly informs Joseph that he knows what he's doing and that no mistake has been made. Okay. If this is no mistake and Jacob knows what he's doing, then why is he doing this? It seems to me, and as another writer confirms, God had apparently revealed to Jacob something about these two boys, namely that Ephraim would take prominence over Manasseh and the tribes of Israel. If you were here, maybe you'll recall when we studied about Isaac, that at one point Jacob's father, Isaac, had been given a similar revelation about the nature of his own sons. And even though Isaac attempted unsuccessfully to ignore what God had revealed... It seems that something similar had happened with Jacob in terms of receiving some kind of revelation. And so unlike his father, and in obedience to what God had shown him, Jacob blesses both boys, sure, but he clearly places the younger ahead of the older. Which leads us to the last thing I really want us to see this morning. And it's simply this. The way that God's blessings and God's workings can be quite contrary to the expectations and plans of his people. In bringing his two sons forward, Joseph clearly thought that God was going to do things according to what was typical, what was traditional, according to what was expected. However, God didn't do it that way. He did it contrary to what Joseph would have expected, memorably illustrated by this crossing of Jacob's hands. Regarding this, one writer makes this insightful comment. He says, these crossed hands... We meet still. For how often does God quite reverse our order and bless most that about which we had less concern and seem to put a slight on that which has engrossed our best affection? And in the case of much that we hold dear, the same rule can be seen. A pursuit that we wish to be successful in, we can make little of and are thrown back from continually, while something else in which we've thrown ourselves almost accidentally prospers in our hand and blesses us. Again and again, for years together, we put forward some cherished desire to God's right hand, seeking His blessing, and are displeased like Joseph that still the hand of greater blessing should pass to something else. Does God know what is oldest with us? What has been longest on our hearts? What is dearest to us? Certainly he does. You might be at a loss to know why he does no more to deliver you from some sin 
or why he does not make you more successful in your efforts to aid others, or why he so liberally prospers you in some part of your condition, you get so much less in another that's nearer your heart. I think this writer is quite on the mark. We certainly do see in these verses the extraordinary truth that God does indeed work in ways that are often surprising. Often not what we would have chosen or assumed or expected. We see the illustration of the thing that is so beautifully expressed much later on in the scriptures. Which talk about the way that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And we see this principle again and again throughout the history of God's working out his covenant promises and purposes. We see it culminating in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the absolute enshrinement of this truth. As he being fully God took on human flesh. Who saw that coming? As he achieved victory over sin and death through his submission to the humiliation of the cross. Who saw that coming? Nobody. Crossed hands was not what Joseph expected. The cross of Christ was equally unexpected. Thank God for that. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to talk about these kind of things. It is hard to remember them when we are in the middle of them. We thank you for the scriptures that show this truth over and over again. That you work your purposes out absolutely and you absolutely work them out in ways we don't expect. Both of those things are true. Nothing could be clearer when we look at the cross. That's the last place we expected to find you. It was the place you were going all along. The Father, help that. Help us to look at that and to see past uh, the present. That makes us makes it difficult sometimes for us to believe those things. And Father, when we are in better places. Help us to be the ones that take this amazing, counterintuitive, unexpected reality and point others to it. Father, use us to draw others into this family of those who have been amazed and saved and redeemed by this powerful thing that you are doing, that you have done, and that nobody expected. We pray these things in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen. I'll take a moment now to receive a morning offering if you want to support the work of this church.